Well, good afternoon, everybody. We are continuing our systematic study of, on the doctrine of God. Last week, we talked about God's incommunicable attributes. Well, this week, we're going to be discussing God's communicable attributes. And actually, for this week and for the remaining two lessons, we'll be discussing God's communicable attributes. So what do we mean when we say communicable attributes? What does that mean? Well, when we say that, what we mean are those attributes that are found in God that bear some resemblance or analogy in man. Another way of putting that is these are the attributes that um, of God, which we as humans also possess, albeit in a finite form. So when we look at those incommunicable attributes, there was a clear distinction in that, in a, in a clear identification that God is God and we are not. When it comes to those communicable attributes, we are reminded that we were created in the image of God. Now, that being said, we should not forget, as I mentioned last week, if you remember, that it's those incommunicable attributes that actually qualify the communicable attributes. And by that, what I mean is if you remember those incommunicable attributes, God being immutable, eternal, and unchangeable. So when we look at his communicable attributes, in particular, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, let's take one that we'll be going over today in wisdom or knowledge. So God's knowledge is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, whereas ours are not. So so again, so it's his incommunicable attributes that actually help to qualify even those communicable attributes so that we don't start to think that we are like God. So I'm going to utilize what the Westminster Shorter Catechism in question four um, defines as God to be basically my outline for the communicable attributes. And if you remember, question four of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which asks the question, what is God, answers by saying that God is a spirit, um, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So the last six, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, those would be those communicable attributes and those categories. And this week, we're going to be focusing on the first two categories, wisdom as well as power. So let's start first by discussing wisdom. Now, obviously included in this banner in, in, in wisdom is knowledge. Now, though the shorter catechism doesn't list not the word knowledge, when we look at the larger catechism, in particular question seven, we do see um, knowledge listed as a communicable attribute. Now, by knowledge, according to Charles Hodge in the Systematic Theology, is meant the intellectual apprehension of truth. It supposes a subject and object, an intelligent subject that apprehends, and something true that is apprehended. So in God, we can understand knowledge to mean that perfection by which he, in an, an entirely unique manner, knows himself in all things both possible and actual. See, man, man's knowledge is finite. It moves from subject to subject and is increased through the process of learning and reason. Whereas with God, his knowledge is exhaustive. 
It's instantaneous, simultaneous, and everlasting. So in other words, God doesn't learn anything. Louis Berghoff, in his systematic theology, puts it this way. God's knowledge is innate and immediate and does not result from observation or from a process of reasoning. Being perfect, it is also simultaneous and not successive, so that he sees things at once in their totality and not piecemeal one after another, end quote. Theologically, we would say that God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He knows all things fully, completely, perfectly, and at once. And we see in passages, for example, like Job chapter 37, verse 16, Job was saying this. Actually, God replying to Job saying this. Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds, the wonders of one perfect in knowledge? And then we see in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. And lastly, 1 John 3, verse 20. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart, and God knows all things. When we say that God's knowledge is exhaustive, by that what we mean is God knows all possible things to know. It's all-encompassing. Um, all 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his statue, stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees, not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So we can see here in a passage like this, God is able to see far beyond what we're able to see because God is omniscient. When we say that God's knowledge is instantaneous, what we mean by that is he doesn't increase in knowledge. It doesn't increase over time. Isaiah 40, verse 13 through 40, or 14, excuse me, says this, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? or as his counselor has informed him. With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? The obvious answer to that is no one did. Because God doesn't have to learn anything. His knowledge is instantaneous. When we say that God's knowledge is simultaneous, what we mean is, in his mind, you know, his mind doesn't move from step to step or from subject to subject as ours do. When we say that God's knowledge is everlasting, we mean that because our God is eternal and thus created time, he knows all things past, present, and future, and there's no changing of his mind. Isaiah chapter 46 verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, Things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. In fact, we would say that God knows all things because all things extend from his thoughts. Now, this carries with it some huge implications for how 
it is that we come to gain true knowledge. And I want you to really ponder this and think about this. If we understand God to be the fountain and source of all knowledge, then any knowledge that we are to attain must come from that source. Well, let's ask ourselves a question. How is it then that we attain that knowledge? Where do we get that? Where does God dictate, maybe a better way to put it, that knowledge to us for us to acquire? It's in the scriptures. It's in his words. As Robert Raymond puts it, God's knowledge revealed in the Holy Scripture is then the criterion of validity for all human predication. It is only in God's light that we see light. So how we know what we know is through God's word revealed to us. The next attribute, still within the the you know, the category of, of knowledge is wisdom. And again, Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology defines wisdom in this way. God's wisdom is his intelligence as manifested in the adaptation of means to ends. Just think of it in this way. So knowledge oftentimes deals with the theoretical understanding of certain things, whereas wisdom takes to, into account the big picture and makes the best possible moves that accomplishes the ultimate end, which is trying to be reached. Or another way to put it, knowledge most oftentimes deals with the how. How does this happen? How, how are we to do this? How do, am I to understand this? Whereas wisdom oftentimes deals with the why. Why should I do this? Why is this the best route to go? You may have a person who is very knowledgeable, but lack wisdom. But you don't tend to find a person who has wisdom and is considered dumb. And just like with knowledge, wisdom in God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. There is not a moment in time where God does not exercise and is not displaying his wisdom. You know, when we see the world working as it is, when we see creation working as it is, all things working together, what we're seeing is God's wisdom on full display. Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31. We see Solomon saying this, The Lord possessed me, that is wisdom, at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I, again, wisdom, was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundaries so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I, wisdom, was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. This is wisdom. God 
in his wisdom, created the world. We see God's wisdom displayed in creation, but not just in creation, also in redemption, in providence. Romans 8, verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Ephesians 3, verse 11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in our redemption, we see the wisdom of God being displayed before us. You know, there is an ultimate end that God has in mind, and it is his wisdom that dictates how all things will come about, how that end will be reached. So now, understanding that, you know, when we complain or whine about why things are the way they are, why are things going in this way? We're speaking truly from ignorance. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10, do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So we noted knowledge and we noted wisdom. Now let's move on to the next communicable attribute, which is power. Now under the banner of power, as we see it in the shorter catechism, there will be three attributes that we'll be focusing in on. Power, sovereignty, and will. So let's start first with the communicable attribute of power. By that, what we mean is God is able to do whatever he wills in the way that he wills it. No one can stop or limit God. God is omnipotent, almighty, all-powerful. Jeremiah chapter 32 verse 17 says this, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. But then we see him continuing in verses 26 and 27 of Jeremiah 32. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? And then we see in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a, mul a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Charles Hodge puts it this way. We, beyond very narrow limits, must use means to accomplish our ends. With God, means are unnecessary. He wills and it is done. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He, by a, a volition, created the heavens and the earth. At the volition of Christ, the winds ceased, and there was a great calm. By an act of the will, he healed the sick, opened the eyes of the blind, and raised the dead. So when we look at God's power, there are two aspects that we want to look at his absolute power and his ordered or ordinate power, depending on who you're reading. Now, by absolute power, what we're talking about is his power, which entails all the things that God is able to do, which includes those things that he will to do and even those things that he has not willed to do. Another way of putting this is 
God can do far more than he has exercised and created the world around us. If you look, if you have your Bibles, which if you're home, I hope you have your Bibles with you. Turn to Job chapter 26. And we'll look at verses 5 through 14. And we see Job saying this. The departed spirits tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Naked a shield before him and Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds and the cloud does not burst under them. He obscures the face of the full moon and spreads his cloud over it. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters out the boundary of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. He quieted the sea with his power and by his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his breath, the heavens are cleared. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpents. And listen to what he says in verse 14. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways and how faint a word we hear of him. By his mighty thunder, who can understand? These are the fringes of his way. All the things that we saw Job mentioning in regards to his creative power. And he says, these are the fringes, the outskirts of his ways. God is able to do far more exceedingly than what we see him exercise in creation. Now, with that being said, this actually moves us to um, what theologians would call his ordered power. And by that, what we mean is that perfection of God, whereby he, through the mere exercise of his will, realizes whatsoever is present in his will or counsel. So this basically focuses on what God willed to do. Basically, whatever God wills to do, he does. Now, you may be wondering, well, why the distinction? Why are we making this distinction? As with most everything else when it comes to to theology, Uh, oftentimes what tends to happen is someone that doesn't know their Bible starts to misinterpret their Bible, and it takes Bible teachers to clarify and specify what the Bible actually teaches. And the reason for the distinction between absolute power and ordered power is because there were many theologians who started to, to make the claim that all that we see in creation is the full extent of God's power. So in other words, what we see in creation, all the things in in creation is the full extent. And then if we don't see it in creation, God is unable to do it. And biblical Christians rightly understood that this is not the case at all. And they pointed to passages like we just read in Joel 26 to make the case that God can do far more than what he willed in creation itself. Now, with me saying that, it is important. For, for me to make some clear some some to make sure I'm being very clear when it comes to us discussing God's omnipotence itself. Because when we mention that, that God is omnipotent, He is all powerful, that doesn't necessarily mean that He can do anything. Now, fortunately, I'm doing this virtually, so I have time to explain myself before I get tarred and feathered. Now, by that, what I mean is there are some things that God cannot do. God can't do whatever is ethically or metaphysically contrary to his nature. So in other words, things like God can't lie. Hebrews 6, verses 17 through 18 tells us as such. It says, thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability 
of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And then we see in Titus 1 verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago. God can't deny himself. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We know God doesn't change. We saw that with his incommunicable attribute of immutability. God can't do the irrational or the self-contradictory. Not because logic is above God, but because logic is an aspect within the mind of God. You know, oftentimes, you know, you may get this, the skeptic who may say, well, can God build a, create a rock so heavy that he can't lift? And this is silly. Because basically you're asking God to not be God itself. So things like that, irrational, illogical things, Obviously, God is not able to do because God cannot deny himself. God can't exhaust all his power. Again, for the reason that for him to exhaust all his power is basically to, to say that God is able to go from being God to no longer being God, to go from being omnipotent to being not omnipotent itself. As we noted, when God created all the universe, when God works all the things that we see him working, those, like Job mentioned in Job, in Job 26, that's the fringe of his power. God is able to do far more than that. And with all that being said, a more precise way to define God's omnipotence was given to us by Robert Raymond in his Systematic Theology, and I like how he defines it. He says, God has the power to do everything that he has determined that he will do, and even the power to do that which is non-contradictory, which he does not will to do. Now, if we understand that God is all-powerful, then it's reasonable to infer that if he is all-powerful, then he must also be sovereign, which brings us to the next attribute of sovereignty. I want you to think about that. If a person truly is all-powerful, is omnipotent, itself, yet someone is able to stop him from doing what he wants to do, then he truly isn't all powerful itself. So a, an inference in God being all powerful is that he is also sovereign. Now by sovereignty, what we mean is this, God's controlling power by which he directs every aspect of his will creation, creatures, and history according to his plan and purpose. First Chronicles, verse 29, or chapter 29, verse 11 tells us this. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So God being omnipotent, God being the creator, God being eternal is the one who orchestrates and ordains all things. He orders all things. It is God's will that is done on earth and in heaven. 
There is not one sphere, one iota that is left outside the purview and sovereign will of God. All things fall and work according to his purpose. We see this truth of God's sovereignty in creation. We see it even with government. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water. In the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he wishes. I mean, if you think about in, um, in Exodus with Pharaoh, who was it that hardened Pharaoh's heart? See, the government can't do what God did not ordain for it to do. Daniel 4 verse 35 after God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, we see him say this, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? We see God's sovereignty in election and reprobation. All you got to do is read Romans 9. We see it even with the death of Jesus Christ himself, God's sovereignty over that in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So even that, God is sovereign over. God is sovereign over um, how he dis um, distributes things to individuals, people's lot in life, his favor or whatnot. You know, if you read Proverbs chapter 32, verse 8, you, you see Agur, I think is how it's pronounced, asking God to give me neither poverty nor riches. Well, why would you ask God for that if it wasn't, if, if why would you ask God for that if it wasn't him that it was the one that distributes riches poverty itself. So it's presupposed in there that it's God who's the one that gives those things to us. Charles Hodge, he says, he gives to some riches, to others honor, to others health, while others are poor, unknown, or victims of disease. It is God in his sovereignty. You know, when I reflect upon this particular attribute of God, his sovereignty, Itself, Something that runs through my mind is the fact that it requires a lot of humility to embrace this, to understand this, to accept it itself. You know, we have the tendency to think that we are the rulers of our domain. We control what we do. It is us that does and orders our life. No one else controls it until you read your Bible. And then you realize, oh no, no, your life is in the hands of God. And then for some people, that can build up a lot of pride in them, build up a lot of pride or start to have them ask dumb questions like, well then if God is the one that rules, then why am I responsible for, for sinning itself? We are not masters of our domain. As I mentioned, all things fall according to the counsel of God's will and not ours. I already, I already read from Daniel chapter 4, but let's not forget, Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was you know, in full control of his domain. It was his will 
that would be done. And God humbled him by making him act like a beast, act crazy for a season. And then when God took him out of that, he realized, oh, no, no one can stop the hand of God because it is God who is fully sovereign, not man. And any dominion that you have is dominion that God has given to you. Understanding God's sovereignty brings us to our next and final point that I want to talk about, which is the will of God, the sovereign will of God. If God is fully in control of all things that comes to pass, then that means that it is his will that is being accomplished. Now, when we read the scriptures, however, we do know that there are many instances in which we are being told what to do. We are given directives on what we are to do, how we are to live itself. In light of those passages that acknowledges our duties, our responsibilities, as well as other passages that talks about God's sovereign control over all things itself, theologians throughout church history have sought to distinguish between two aspects of God's will, what's known as his secret will or his decretive will, and what's known as his revealed will or his perceptive will. Now by that, his secret will, what we mean is this. This refers to what God ordains to actually come to pass. So all things that actually come to pass itself, Daniel 4 verse 17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that he, that the living, excuse me, may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now we call this will his secret will because God has largely hidden this aspect of his will, this aspect of his will from us un until they come to pass or as he chooses to reveal it to us. When we talk about his revealed will, what we talk about are those precepts that God requires of us in his word that God commands for us to follow, to actually do. In Matthew 7, verse 21, for example, we see Jesus saying this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. If Jesus in this passage was talking about the Father's secret will, then no one will enter into heaven. So what is he talking about here? God's revealed will, those things that we see in his word that we are commanded to do. Now, even though we're making these distinctions here, you know, between his secret will and his revealed will, we must not forget that these, that all of this first and foremost are not in conflict with one another and they're actually one in God. The revealed will actually helps um, to fulfill God's secret will. Well, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, a very famous passage that many people know. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of the Lord, of this law. Herman Bovink, in his Doctrine of God, writes this. 
The usual objection advanced against the decretive, or secret will, and the preceptive, or revealed will, namely that they are in conflict with each other, is not justifiable. For the perceptive will is not really God's will, but his precept for our conduct. By means of it, God does not reveal to us what he will do. It is not a law for his conduct, but it tells us what we must do. It is a rule for our conduct itself. And then we see Louis Burkhoff say this, Yet it is of great importance to maintain both the decretive and the preceptive will, but with the definite understanding that while they appear to us as distinct, they are yet fundamentally one in God, end quote. So in, in an, another way of saying is, is this is a distinction that we are making from our vantage point. You know, we have to remember that we are limited in our knowledge. We are not omniscient. And as a result, it is important for us, for our understanding sometimes, to make these type of distinctions itself. Now, in me saying all of this here, we also can't allow for our understanding of God's revealed will and his secret will to, as I mentioned earlier, start to have us to question certain things as we see people do time and time again. For example, we see many people say, well, in light of God's secret will, well, then why am I responsible for the sinning that I do? Who can resist his will? It's funny because Paul answers that question in Romans 9, 19 to 21. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? So people were asking the same question back then. And I love how Paul answers. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? We are the molded. We are not the molder itself. So again, like I said, when you reflect upon sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, the same like with the will of God, it ought to humble you. It ought to remind you that you are not the potter, you are the clay, you are not the molder, you are the thing that is being molded. And don't let your understanding of God's sovereignty and his will make you forget that simple fact. We ought to be humbled, quite frankly, at the fact, in light of what we are, that God condescends to us in the way that he did to even provide for us his revealed will. Because think about it. What other creature does God condescend in the manner that he does to us? Our mindset ought to be like what we see David say in Psalm chapter 8, when he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Itself. So again, I bring this up because it's so easy oftentimes when we get into theology, when we get into some of these things to you know, allow our minds to really think through these things and then forget that you know we are just men and we ought to be humbled. We ought to respond as Paul does after in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 11, after he explains the deep things when it comes to the, um, to, that 
comes through in regards to the gospel and everything. And he says, oh, the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of, of God, you know, how unsearchable are his ways. He, say, he breaks out into doxology itself. That ought to be our response when we go over things like this. But to wrap all of this up, you know, we just touched on five of those communicable attributes. Knowledge, wisdom, power, sovereignty, and will. All of these attributes, as I stated before, we share with God, but in a finite sense. We display knowledge and exercise wisdom, but not in the same exhaustive capacity as God. We have power, but it's not omnipotent. We exercise sovereignty and dominion, but only as God allows. We have wills, but they're not independent of God, nor do they work against the will of God. So this concludes our lesson today. Next Lord's Day, what we'll do is we're going to continue our look through the communicable attributes, and we're going to focus primarily on two attributes, holiness and justice.